make your way to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and uh, chapter number 23. We're continuing our study of Matthew. If you're new, visiting with us, and uh, unfamiliar, um, if you go to basically the middle of your Bible, you'll probably come somewhere in Psalms or Isaiah, somewhere in there. Go to the right, and eventually you'll find Matthew. If you find Luke, you've gone a little too far. Go back to the left, and um, you'll find at the top of the page, chapter number 23, and uh, that's where we're studying, and we're working our way through verse by verse, line by line, and uh, studying God's work consecutively like this helps us to see the context, uh, the big picture of what's going on, as well as the details in each particular part of God's Word. And we believe here, we believe that each part of God's Word is without error because it is breathed out by Him. So He superintended the writing of this book. It's alive. It's the Theological term is it's inspired, and uh, so we trust it, we submit ourselves under it, and we allow the Holy Spirit of God to use it to affect changes in us. So we're excited to have you with us if you're a guest, and I uh, hope that the Word will be meaningful and effective in your life today as well. Let's read uh, from the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and uh, we're going to pick up our reading in verse number 13. We started the study of this entire chapter last Lord's Day. And we're going to pick up here about halfway through. Uh, we figured this first portion, verses 1 through 12. Uh, last week we examined that. And uh, we're going to give our, our attention to the second part, the second major portion of this chapter today. So let's pick up our reading in verse number 13. And Jesus here is addressing the false leaders of the nation of Israel, religious leaders. And he is condemning them. And so let's read his condemnation beginning in verse number 13. These are the words of God preserved to us for today. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he has become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some 
You will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we come now to examine your word, to position ourselves to allow your word to examine us. We do not stand in judgment over your word, but we commit ourselves, we desire to have the word stand over us in judgment to warn us to to educate us spiritually to teach us to transform us it is by your word that we have been brought forth james tells us it is by your word that you sanctify us even as our lord jesus prayed in john 17 so we desire as those who have been brought forth by the word of truth to be sanctified in the truth. And we acknowledge together that your word is truth. So may the reception of your word be ready and eager. And may you bless the proclamation so that it is clear and attainable. May your word not be distracted. May we come with focused attention and glean all that you have for us this morning so that we might bring you glory as we bear the likeness of our Savior and your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we are picking up this morning uh, where we left off uh, last Lord's Day. And so we are right in the center of um, a chapter which makes it difficult for us, especially if we weren't here last Lord's Day or if we have very short memories, which I confess with you that I do as well. So let me give you a little bit of review of our context, where we are in Matthew, and um, I hope it'll situate us to understand and to apply what we're learning this morning from Matthew chapter 23. The, the record of Matthew is, is a record for the purpose of proving the messiahship, the, the messianic ministry of Jesus. Matthew wrote this to an early church to prove to them that they need look for no one else. There is no other name under heaven whereby men are saved. This is it. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And so as Matthew wrote this, he doesn't write it as just a sheer biographical history. He writes it with the intent of proving to his readers and proving to us, as the Spirit has preserved it for us, proving to us the validity of the claims of Christ to be the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies looking toward a Messiah. The fulfillment of the law of God, the the perfect substitute who obeyed the fullness, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. So with that goal in mind, Matthew wrote this with five major divisions inside of this work. So inside of this book of Matthew, there are five major divisions. We have an introduction and a conclusion, and the centerpiece, the content of the book, can be divided into five discourses that Jesus delivers. Five different sermons, if you will, five different talks, whatever the common vernacular is. Jesus is teaching five different major sessions. And Matthew uses those to kind of be the outline, the structure for this record of Jesus ministry. We are at the tail end of the fourth discourse. Each discourse is followed by a narrative section that explains the ministry life of Jesus. Then we come to another discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative. We're in the fourth one of those transitions, and we're almost to the very end of the narrative portion that follows the discourse. So in chapter 24, in verse number 1, we'll start discourse number 5. So we are, we are close to the end of the ministry of Jesus. His teaching ministry is winding down because it is Tuesday. He's in the temple in Jerusalem on Tuesday, and on Friday he will hang naked on a tree and die for the sins of his people. We are three days into the Passion Week, Matthew chapter 23. Jesus has now 
engaged the crowds. He's been challenged. He's answered his challengers. And in answering his challengers in chapter 21 and 22, Jesus has exposed the blindness of the people who supposedly are leading the nation of Israel toward God. So his answers have left at the end of chapter 22 and verse number 46, they were silent and no one dared to ask him any more questions. He exposed the ignorance of the so-called experts. Can you imagine this in our common context, our modern day context? You go to a seminar for some expert in your field. He says something about the field and somebody raises their hand. He takes a question. He doesn't have an answer. You think, oh, that's, that's interesting. He must not have studied that particular angle. He takes another question. He doesn't have an answer. Takes another question. He doesn't have an answer. About three or four questions in with no answers to provide, the whole title of expert starts to really be questioned. Jesus here has not just questioned the authority and the leadership and the the, the awareness of truth with these Pharisees and scribes, with these religious leaders, he's exposed that they are utterly incompetent. They are blind. And so in exposing their blindness, Jesus now in chapter 23 turns to the crowds and in a, in a very intense and personal way, he addresses these people. He tells the crowd in verses 1 through 12 that they need to be careful of, of their relationship to these leaders. As they sit in the seat of Moses, that is, as they open up the Old Testament word of God and read and explain it, as far as they are in keeping with the word of God and the intent of Moses, they are to obey them, but they are never to emulate them. So they are to obey these leaders cautiously. And secondly, in verses 1 through 12, we found that Jesus instructs the people to live differently than these leaders. So they're to obey them as far as they communicate God's word, but they are to reject their lifestyle. And in contrast, they're to live with kingdom principles in direct, in direct contrast to these religious leaders. So Jesus is closing the noose, if you will, on the blind guides of Israel. The closing statement is being presented. And in the second portion of Matthew chapter 23, he turns his attention away from the crowd that's around him. And we don't know the scene. We, we don't know all the factors involved. But some group is the target. There is at least one scribe and one Pharisee and probably many more standing together within that crowd, standing in the back, standing off to the side somewhere. And Jesus now turns and he focuses his attention and he condemns them publicly with severe judgments from his sovereign authority. As we've studied through this section, we have seen again and again and again that the sovereign authority of Jesus unifies the people that are opposed to his kingdom work. It unifies his enemies and it unifies his followers. They're unified in the comfort of his sovereign leadership and the enemies are unified in their rebellion against his sovereign leadership. No different here. Jesus now exposes and now drives home the condemnation of these blind leaders of Israel. Now, there's an important there's an important reason why this is so critical to us. Now, we're sitting here. We are not in the nation of Israel. We're certainly not in the temple. This is not a sanctuary. Um, we are people of God in the New Testament time. Thousands of years after Christ has ascended back into heaven. Why does Matthew chapter 23 mean much to us this morning? Well, it means much to us, as we talked about briefly last week, because we are set at a default setting from our birth on toward false religion. That's what makes this so important to us. We, we could be prone to say, this is about scribes and Pharisees, and the last time I checked in my wallet, I couldn't find my scribe or Pharisee card, so... I'm off the hook. This is great. No, the default setting of our hearts is toward false religion. Therefore, we need to be careful to pay attention to the descriptions that are given here of false religious leaders. Now, why do I say it's the default setting of our heart? Because Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 tells us that in Adam, our hearts are desperately wicked and they're deceitful beyond belief. So when you're born... Your, your default setting, if you will, that's a technology term, your, your base operating system is set toward false religion, deceiving and corrupting truth. 
there are basically two kinds of false religious people in the world. There are those who reject the God of the Bible, make their own God, often it's themselves, define their own standard of righteousness, and then live up to their own standard. That's false religion. That's paganism. That's every form of false religion outside of what is broadly called Christendom. But there's a second group of false religion people, even within our modern day context, that very much mirror these Pharisees. And those are the people who believe that there is a God in heaven, that there is a one true living God who even is the creator of all that exists. But they do not submit under him. And so they define their own standard of righteousness under him and then seek to justify themselves before him. All false religions end up with you, the sinner, working your way up to some standard. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 says that all of us have been hardwired with the awareness of God with with proof of his existence and power, and all of us categorically have rejected the information given to us. So only by God's grace, only by his work of, of, of salvific grace in our lives, of saving us, of giving us new life and eyes that are open to Christ and his glory, only then are we saved from the pitfalls of false religion. And even then, the principle of sin that remains in us is, is always steering, apart from God's sustaining grace and the application of the gospel to our lives, we are prone to false religion. So it's our default setting. Therefore, we need Matthew chapter 23 to remind us of the severity of getting it wrong, of false religion, and particularly of false leaders who would claim to lead people toward God. So if there's a big idea over this, I want to say it positively this morning. Last week, we talked about mere religion and its leaders must be avoided, condemned and pitied. Let's say that on the positive side, the overarching theme for our study of these verses this morning is this only Jesus. Only Jesus ends mere religion and provides the way, the truth, the life. Only Jesus could be the theme of Matthew chapter 23. Because in Jesus' condemnation, he is in in that condemnation declaring his own singular supremacy. His authority is in full display as he calls out the judgments against the hypocritical, the false, so-called leaders of the nation of Israel. So last week we saw that he had instruction for the people. Today we'll see the condemnation for the leaders in more detail And finish with a glance at his compassion for the nation in the end of this chapter. Jesus condemns the leaders in verses 13 through 36, which we just read together. I want to make sure that you're aware again, there are different kinds of woe to use in your Bible. If you're in your Bible reading, you might come to another portion. In fact, I did this week in my Old Testament Bible reading. I I read a portion that, that dealt with woes and it was warnings. So watch out for this woe to you because you're about to go down this path. There's a second kind of use of the word woe in your Bible, which is a a statement of reality. It's already done deal. It's, it's, it's a settled issue, and that's the case here. Jesus is not saying, watch out. He's saying, woe to you, because it's already done. Who you are is established, false leaders, and your blindness is perpetual. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites are the most common words to describe these leaders. Blind guides is used often, blind men. Blindness is their defining quality. Nothing like a guide who can't see what's in front of him. That's the definition of false religious leaders. Now, in this condemnation in verses 13 through 36, I I feel like Jesus is is not just condemning the religious leaders. He's humiliating them. Um, You know, if you've if you've been here at all, that I'm a I'm a Louis L'Amour fan. I'm a Western novel guy in my other life in my secret life that's that's who i am i'm a mean cowboy who's not six foot five and weighs 100 pounds soaking wet i'm this mean guy who rides a horse when my feet don't drag on the ground 
And uh, I read Louis L'Amour books. I've read them since I was a little guy, probably 12 years old. And I love them. And one of the key things, if you're a Louis L'Amour reader or if you've ever involved yourself with any kind of Western, is that the, the hero of the story, at some point in the story, often will come to the, the, the anti-hero, the, the worst guy in the story, and he'll call him out in public. He'll say it how it is. But in the Louis L'Amour books, often, he doesn't just leave it at that. And that bad guy will, will, will start to get angry enough that he's going to pull out his weapon and try to take the life of the hero of the story. But in his self-control to try to save face, he'll unbuckle his gun belt. And he'll say, we'll settle this with our hands. And they head out in front of all of the community. I can smell it. I'm so close to it. And they'll slug it out. And what will happen every single time is that the hero will publicly humiliate the bad guy. He will pound him with his fist until the man crumbles in the dust and is humiliated for all of his worthlessness as a human being. Jesus here pummels the false religious leaders. It's one blow after another, and they aren't getting any blows back in. Takes them out in front of everyone and he throws down on them to declare their condemnation and provide a warning to everyone who hears him of the danger of following such incompetent guides. So let's look at the descriptions and see them once again. We saw them briefly last week. Let's see them again this morning. There are seven condemnations, seven descriptions of these leaders that result in their condemnation. Why are they 100% guaranteed of judgment from God? Well, there's seven reasons given here in this, in this condemnation from Jesus. Number one, they block the kingdom of heaven. They block the kingdom of heaven. In verse number 13, they are described as shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So what is perceived as a, a, a person who would walk you into the presence of God, a leader who would take you into the presence of steadfast covenant God of the universe, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Those leaders are actually slamming the door of the kingdom in the face of all who might enter. These leaders are condemned because they block the kingdom for potential followers of the king. This is a similar statement that Jesus made in chapter 18. Not too long ago, Jesus declared that this is what was happening. They were hindering people from coming to the kingdom. Their condemnation is sure because they block the kingdom of heaven. While they claim to have the keys to heaven, they have only the intention of slamming the door in the face of all who might enter. Reason number two that they're guaranteed, we find in verse number 15. For you travel across sea and land. You go to any length to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is a fascinating statement from Jesus. But the second reason that there's a guarantee of condemnation for these false religious leaders and all who would engage with false religion is that the damnation of souls is at the center of their work. They block the kingdom and they damn souls to hell. Those who follow these false leaders will out-false them. The Pharisees will be out-Phariseed by their followers. I remember a professor in my university days who would say that the one teacher's extreme or one generation's extreme is the next generation's norm. One teacher's extreme is always the pupil's norm. The Pharisees who are slamming the door of the kingdom in the faces of all who might come with that desire are leading to twice the sons of hell with everyone that they gain to their cause. This is eternal in its consequence. Mess with the truth. Mess with the gospel. Mess with the message of, of God through his grace in his son Jesus. And you are not only sealing your own eternity, but you are leading others blindly toward damnation. Such was the case for these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, 
who were hypocrites. That is, they claimed one thing on the outside, while on the inside they were something entirely different. They blocked the kingdom, the damned souls from heaven to hell. Number three, they distort worship for followers. Now, there's some cultural and somewhat confusing descriptions and pictures that Jesus uses here. And being this far away from Matthew chapter 23, it's important that we we give a little bit of attention to these descriptions. Verse number 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. And then we go to the altar in verse number uh, verse number 18. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar or the sacrifices on the altar, he's bound by his oath. Oaths were a common part of life, swearing upon something to carry out some vow. You'll remember that Jesus communicated about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 33 through 37. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus is all about the heart, which results in being all about truth-bearing in the lives of his kingdom people. The false religious leaders were so confused in their understanding, so blinded in their guidance, that they had reversed all of what was important. They were distorting worship for the people of God. They were highlighting what should have been what should have been background, and they were backgrounding what should have been highlighted. So the temple is the dwelling place of God. We no longer have a temple because Christ has put an end to the need for a temple. We now are a priesthood. Our body is a temple because the presence of God now dwells here. The Shekinah would come and dwell in the temple. The Spirit of God now dwells with each of us. And when we gather, He is uniquely present with us. But the temple represented the presence of God. Fascinatingly enough, if you swore by the gold finishes at the temple, you were held more liable than if you swore by the temple itself. The halter, which was the place where offerings were made in accordance to the law of Moses for the covering of sin, for peace, for forgiveness in a temporary fashion. Those offerings which demanded, called for faith on the part of the offerer were so distorted in these blind guides and their perspective that those who swore by the altar didn't didn't have anything binding upon them, but if they swore by the gift, the pigeon, the dove, the grain, the ox, the lamb, whatever was there, then they were bound. Notice Jesus' logic. Verse number 17. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Verse number 19. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by everything in it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by the one who dwells in it. And, and whoever swears by heaven is swearing by God. Jesus' point is there is a total distortion of value system in worship with these false leaders. They have majored on the minor. They've minored on the major. And this is going to continue to develop as Jesus goes on in these condemnations. They distort worship for the people of God. They distract the people of God. From biblical worship. So they block the kingdom. They damn souls to hell. They distort worship for those who would worship God. Verse number four. These false leaders are condemned because they distort the law of God. Verses 23 and 24. We find following Jesus' description of these oaths. This fourth woe. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. There was a value system that was not only wrong in worship, but it was completely distorted and distracted when it came to the law of God. Now, again, we're we're thousands of years away from this. I, I I'm confident I can go out on a limb and say that there was no dill placed in an offering plate this morning. I, I mean, if you did. We are grateful for your kind gift. We will extend its use for the sake of the kingdom. But I doubt it. Offerings of these herbs are not a part of our existence. These were a common part of the life of the Jewish people. In particular, these blind guides made much of these special offerings. These extended offerings. These 
finer points of the law, these minute details within the law, all the while rejecting the heart command and demand from the law of God. And that's exactly what Jesus addresses as he condemns them for their distortion of the law of God. He goes on in verse number 23. These you ought to have done. That is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those are internal qualities lived out in the life of an individual. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then this almost comical description. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They are straining for the smallest detail even while they are drinking a massive animal. This picture is meant to be ridiculous because these false leaders are condemned for their distortion and distraction from the law of God, which has misplaced all who follow him. And that is ridiculous in the truest sense of that word. If you want to read more about the meal offerings that are described here, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. Is a great starting place. Fifthly, these false leaders and false religion not only blocks the kingdom, damns souls to eternal hell, distorts worship, distorts the law, but it distorts and they distort personal holiness. Now, brothers and sisters, we are getting close to home here. Think not that this is way out there and we're in here and, and this is safe and this stuff is somewhere else. These descriptions that Jesus use, uses in condemnation of these false leaders are dangerously close to home. Notice verse number 25. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. What Jesus says here is that the sanctification, that is the, the holiness model, the, the progress in the life of a follower of Christ or the people of God in looking more like him in his character. The process is always, always from the inside out. And these blind guides were leading people to believe that they could change the outside without affecting the inside or that in some way affecting the outside would change the inside. You say, well, surely this has never made it into the Christian church. Uh, it made it there faster than we can believe. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1, we find a group of believers who, though they began their life in Christ by the power of the Spirit, are now being perfected by their flesh. In other words, those Galatian believers Paul's addressing are, are believing this lie. And they are now working out their own sanctification by external means. It's about looking right. It's about talking right. It's about doing the right thing. Even while the heart is unaffected by the gospel. The heart is unaffected by truth. The motivation is merely external. These false guides, these blind guides and false religious leaders are condemned because they distort and distract people from growth. And this is really hypocrisy at its worst level. Some kind of outside changes. This is where we live every day. Every Lord's Day for sure. And one of the biggest traps within our Christian experience is coming to the local meeting on the first day of the week and presenting ourselves to one another as if we haven't sinned this past week. And likely we won't sin this coming week. That's how good things are right now for me. I mean, that's, that's, that's how in order everything is. And how do we do that? We get the right clothes on so that we blend in with whatever the surroundings are. We get the right phrases together. We say the right things. We get the right plasticky smile on. You know the Casting Crown song, perhaps the popular song today. We are plastic people under plastic steeples. And we go about making as if the external is what is most important. And if I can get the outside clean, then, then who cares about the inside? Jesus says this is the blindness that leads to condemnation. 
Personal holiness always begins at the heart. This has been Jesus' message from the beginning of his ministry, and it continues to be his message through his apostles and the word of God to us today. It is the heart which then affects the life. To merely change the life with an unaffected heart is to store up wrath for hypocrisy, and it is mere religion. Only Jesus, only Jesus puts an end to mere religion. And provides way, truth, and life for those who come in him. Number six. Sixth reason that these false leaders are condemned. They mislead expectations with appearances. Jesus continuing on the theme of their externalism. In verse number 27 says, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which hourly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, this is... A little bit grotesque, but the, the word picture is, is a powerful one. You see, the Jewish people understood that, that when it came to Passover time and when, when Jerusalem would be packed with people and the roadways would be full of people coming to the temple for Passover, that it was important to dress up the landscape. This reminds me of countries that have the Olympics coming to them. I mean, this is the biggest boost in their roadway system that they could ever dream of. They get new lanes. They get better pavement. Buildings get makeovers. There's new paint jobs. Everything gets spruced up so that when the Olympics are there and the televisions are tuned in, that country and that city looks amazing. Now that same concept was applied at the Passover time in particular to tombs. The Jewish people would paint tombs white to make them look beautiful, to make them look clean on the outside. And obviously what was behind them was very poorly preserved remains of a dead body. The stench of Lazarus comes to mind. It was noticeable and he was in a tomb. So the Jewish people would paint them. Jesus says these false leaders give off an air, an external appearance of spiritual cleanliness, of righteousness. But if you peel back the door you find only uncleanness and corruption. So, verse number 28, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and sin. That's lawlessness. These are spiritually warmed over dead people. Their carcass is painted up to look nice. There's nothing alive on the inside. Finally, the seventh condemnation comes in verse number 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That is those who would put on an air or an external appearance of one thing while the internal reality is quite to the contrast. For you, verse 29 says, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Now, what is it that Jesus is addressing here? The seventh condemnation comes because these false leaders hate God's messengers. And that's what's going on in the end of this section. These false leaders hate God's messengers. They despise the ones sent with his word. Jesus makes that obvious. He talks of their hypocrisy because they put nice flowers at the tombs of the prophets. That their fathers murdered. In their hypocrisy they claim publicly they would never have done what their fathers did. Jesus says thus you witness against yourselves. Yourselves you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. That is take it to the max. And they would in three days. In three days they will take it to the max. They will, they will take the level of, of their hatred for the messengers from God. To the ultimate level. And they will scream. And they will lead others in screaming. Give us Barabbas. And crucify him. This is as dangerous. As we can imagine. Because false religion. Slams the door of heaven. It damns souls to hell. It distorts worship. It distorts the law of God. And the expectations of God. It distorts growth in God. And what holiness actually looks like. And how it is accomplished. It misleads as leaders. With, with externals that would give. Certain expectations. And ultimately false religion. Always ends 
with a hatred for the messengers of God. Verse number 33 is the second part of that last paragraph. Jesus calls them serpents. A pack of vipers, brood of vipers. A hypothetical question, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? There is no escape for those that are committed to false religion. And those who would be dogmatic in their leadership of others away from the truth toward error. And then he concludes, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some of you will flog in synagogues and persecute from town to town so that your judgment might be full. This is a this is a hard statement from Jesus. There are prophets, there are spokesmen for God who come. There is there are apostles and prophets who are the foundation of the church and their word is preserved and they are killed and they are flogged, they are crucified, they are persecuted so that the judgment might be full against these false religious leaders so that no doubt would remain that they are the enemies of all messengers from God. And the final promise is a staggering one. Truly I say to you, verse number 36, all these things will come upon this generation. In silence, these blind guides heard their condemnation from Jesus. Now, what does this leave us as we conclude looking at those woes? Well, only Jesus ends mere religion. And only Jesus provides a contrast to this false leadership. So consider these thoughts with me as we wrap up this section. Jesus opens the kingdom. And Jesus alone opens the kingdom. Jesus saves souls eternally. False religion will slam the door of the kingdom. False religion will damn souls to hell. Jesus opens the door of the kingdom to all who will come in faith. Repenting of their sin and trusting his finished work. He will save souls. Thirdly, Jesus purifies worship. He clarifies and purifies worship. My mind was drawn to John chapter 4. There's a time coming and now is where God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Why? Because the Messiah has come. Jesus purifies, clarifies, never distorts or distracts worship from God. Fourthly, Jesus fulfills the law. Rather than distort the law, Jesus fills it up. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to confuse it. He didn't come to distort it. Jesus obeys it. He fills it to its fullest. On behalf of all who are his. It's his righteousness that is credited to our account. Based upon his fulfillment of the law. False religion distorts the word of God. Jesus obeys perfectly. And upholds the word of God. Fifthly, Jesus sanctifies his followers from the inside out. He never distorts sanctification to make it some effort from the outside in. But rather with a new heart that has eyes and ears of faith. Believing what cannot be seen. Jesus now sanctifies us even as he prayed in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus and the Father are one. It is his work that accomplishes both our salvation and our ongoing growth in holiness, our sanctification. Sixthly, Jesus is as he appears. There is no whitewashing. There is no outside that doesn't match the inside. He is humble, obedient, servant in the likeness of man. Philippians chapter 2 says what we see of Jesus is exactly who he is. He will never fail. You will never find him to be something other than what he claims to be. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never say, I thought you were this, but you're really that. No, with Jesus, he is as he appears, humble and obedient. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And finally, Jesus is the messenger from God. And he loves all who come below him.
So whether they come before him or whether they come after him, Jesus is the pinnacle of communication from God. Hebrews chapter 1, in previous times and in various ways, God spoke to us. But now there is one final voice from God. It's the Son. It's Jesus. He is the messenger. And he honors and cherishes all who have spoken for God in the past and all who speak for him in the future beyond his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. John the Baptist was the recipient of that honor and love. Jesus comes and says, I need to be baptized. And John says, what are you talking about? I prophesy about you coming. I shouldn't even be unlatching your sandals. Jesus, in his humility and his obedience to the standard of God, is the messenger from God who loves and honors all lesser messengers who come under him, whether before or after. Jesus ends religion. This is death to religion by the glorious work of Jesus Christ, who generates and accomplishes a relationship with God between enemies of God and the Holy King of Heaven. Finally, we finish this chapter with these three verses at the end. We're probably most familiar with these just because they're a lot more comfortable to read than the previous verses. Jesus, with compassion for the nation, instruction for the people, verses 1 to 12, condemnation for the leaders, verses 13 to 36, and now compassion for the nation, verses 37 to 39, communicates to them how often he would have gathered them. And verse 39 says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's, that's a direct quote. That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. You can look it up. That's a meaningful quote. Because what Jesus is saying here is, You won't see me again. I will not relate to you as I am right now until you say the Lord is coming. And that will be on the day of the Lord. That will be a terrifying day for all of his enemies. And that will be the glorious day for all of his people. You say, well, I want to know more about that day. When will the Israelites see him in this same way again? When will he relate to them with this same expression that he has just used? Well, that's why we have chapter 24 and discourse number five. Because in his compassion for the nation, Jesus will now explain to the disciples in his fifth discourse what is to come on the day of the Lord. When people will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what do we do with this? We've got to finish. I'm eager to remember our Lord and his sacrifice with you. What do we do having studied these condemnations and this compassion? Number one, very simply, reject mere religion and any of its leaders. This is not an ancient situation. This is right here, right now. Start with your own heart and move outward. In searching for messages that would lead you away from the truth. Lead you away from Christ. Counter the words of Christ. Counter the scriptures that he has given to us. So start with your own heart, but reject mere religion. Root it out. It may have come with you this morning. It might be here right now. It might be... It might be your external appearance of being really attentive to the word of God. I don't, I don't know, nor do I need to. But root it out, find it, reject it, kill it, mortify sin. Particular mere religion that would be external in all of its form without any of the function of a new heart behind it. Secondly, and right connected to it, flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus for genuine, perpetual spiritual leadership, for a way and the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. Run to Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, run to Jesus. How do I deal with with false religion in my own existence as a true child of God? When I see it cropping up, what do I do with it when I'm merely external? What do I do with it when I'm hypocritical? Run to Jesus. It's there that we find genuine and unbreakable righteousness. And it's at his cross that we find ourselves and our sinful hypocrisy nailed 
so that the debt is blotted out with his blood. Colossians chapter 2. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of a substitute who comes in perfect obedience to the standard of God, who dies and bears the full wrath of God for his enemies in their place. A, a, a judgment of substitution. And then is risen to new life. Three days later. The good news of Jesus is the basis for and the only basis for salvation and our ongoing growth in the likeness of Christ. And finally, we're heading into a week that's culturally important to us. There is nothing, nothing that generates gratitude like the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, gratitude is always connected to living as closely as possible to the gospel. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. We find walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Word of Christ, is directly connected to gratitude. So allow the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of a pure and undefiled religion, which begins with the heart and moves out to the life. Allow that to stir gratitude and be the centerpiece of thanksgiving. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath has been completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, but now I'm seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Only Jesus ends mere religion and provides the way, the truth, and the life for all who come in repentance and faith. Father, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his gracious work in our place. We are overwhelmed as we study these condemnations and even see the compassion for the rejecting nation of Israel. We are overwhelmed by the kindness that you have made available to us through the preservation of your word. You have spoken to us. You have provided wisdom and insight. You have given us a warning that is meaningful to us even now. So teach us to seek out and to put away any influences that would lead us toward false religion. May we not become leaders that are characterized by blindness. May the gospel constantly be renewing our minds, informing our conscience, and directing our lives so that we might, we might, we might bring glory to your name. This is why you made us. We desire to accomplish our purpose in this life. And we know that it is only done through the work of our Savior Jesus. So we want to run to Him even now as we remember Him. Help us to focus our attention appropriately upon His death, His violent sacrifice in our place. And we will turn back praise for how You've worked through our time together. In the name of Jesus, Amen.